0: Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sanoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries.
1: Happy New Year. It's gonna be hard to top what happened in 2021 when it comes to dramatic headlines for sure, but what will happen? We have four resident economists and on this part two, the Carolina Business Review Economic Forecast, we will unpack maybe some of the biggest headlines yet to come. Please stay with us because we start right now.
0: Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services on this edition of Carolina Business Review, the economic forecast for 2022, featuring Sarah House of Wells Fargo Securities, Dr. John Connaughton from UNC Charlotte, Dr. Doug Woodward from the University of South Carolina and Dr. Frank Hefner of the College of Charleston.
1: happy new year welcome to a new year a new program we're glad to have all four of you back thank you this is part two of our economic review and now forecast we're going to take a look at where we might be headed here comes even more fun part sarah again going to start with you for better or for worse Uh, sarah the last 20 months or so i think it's probably fair to say it reshaped reshaped many things how we live and how we work but do we have a new permanent set of rules of engagement now in business and strategy and planning and economics and capital markets, etc.?
2: Wow. Well, I think nothing is permanent in, in the economy, we're constantly shifting and involving. And, and there's still in many ways some shakeout from the pandemic and, and how we, we work and do business that, that remains. But I think there will be some important important dynamics to keep an eye on in, in the year ahead. So the one I'm looking at probably most closely is what happens in terms of that labor supply. So we talked in our, our last episode about the degree of retirements, but to what extent do workers begin to come back, perhaps as their financial cushion, thins out a little bit and you know basically we have seen a lot of job opportunities and, and higher pay available to get workers back into the labor market. So that's going to be a dynamic that I'm looking at is, is how permanent are some of these exits and, and how much can we get workers back into the labor market.
1: John what do you think biggest biggest changes coming are going to be X? What's X?
3: Well I think that to kind of paraphrase Don Rumsville, I think there's some known knowns going into 2022. Uh, we've got supply chain issues and labor market issues that are going to be with us the entire year. We're going to have some level of inflation, although we don't really know what level it's going to be, but it's not going to be pretty. And we've got continued deficit spending on, on the part of the federal government. All of those things are going to be big drivers going into 2022. But we also have some known unknowns, some things that we, we know are going to be problematic, but we don't know anything about them. Um, the new variant. We don't know at what, what that's, shape that's going to take, uh, whether we're going to have to go through another round of vaccines. We don't know. And we, we also don't know what the Fed's going to do. The Fed has two issues. They've talked about tapering and they've talked about interest rate policy. But they haven't talked, they've talked in generalities, they haven't talked in specifics, um, and we don't know what's going to happen. And those will have big impacts on the economy in 2022 going forward.
1: Okay, let's keep going down the
3: line, yeah. Frank. Chris,
4: uh, you talked about changing the rules of engagement just from an economic point of view, uh, maybe called pandanomics. There's a new kind of economics out there that came in the pandemic when everyone's expecting now, and this will be true in 2022, that the government's going to be there for them, whether it's the Federal Reserve or if we get another variant, we need more stimulus checks. People are There's a consensus in this age when there's so much partisanship and we're so polarized over many things. There's a surprising amount of agreement that the government is really needed now in a major way to keep this economy humming. But 2022, it's going to be much more difficult because we know the fiscal stimulus is pretty much over. At least the massive fiscal stimulus with the checks and everything, and then the extended unemployment benefits and so forth—that's winding down. Uh, and then that's the, what we'll talk about. It then there's the monetary policy. It's not going to be the same in 2022 as it was in 2021. It's going to be a huge debate over how to taper, how many interest rate uh, increases we're going to see, uh, and uh, so uh, it's it's going to be quite a different year.
5: All right. Right. Well, with respect to uh, COVID, of course, that's very unpredictable. But um, I think what guided us in the past with a lot of the policy issues was the lockdown. Uh, In the absence of a lockdown, uh, we may not see the same kind of dramatic changes that were precipitated by that. In other words, if a new COVID variant comes out, and all we really have to do is just wear masks, then the economy can keep humming along. But the policy issue is if we're going to have a lockdown, that's going to create a major issue in terms of uh, labor markets, uh, mm-hmm. supply chain, the whole, the, whole, the whole kit and caboodle, so to speak. So that, that, that's really the unknown that uh, John is talking about. We just don't know what that policy response is going to be because we don't know how bad the next wave is going to be. And uh, that's just a, a real difficult thing. Now, as far as the supply chain goes, know i've got a good analogy on this if you ever drive down i-26 and you see a traffic accident you've got about five miles of cars backed up it's incredible that when they clear the accident it all those cars don't move at once it takes a good hour or so before it finally you know goes through and, and the supply chain is going to be like that for quite some time, I think.
1: Let, Sarah, let me bring it back to you on this idea of as you all have talked about. But and maybe it's not fair, but the softer science, the psychology of it, the behavioral economic economics of it. Um, we, we like a good drama and not to diminish, of course, the morbidity and the mortality of what this pandemic has brought. But we do like a, a we do like drama in some ways. When does the the, the the COVID or the pandemic, um, best way to say it, uh, fatigue start to wear off and when do we really start looking forward and getting back to some normalization without being moved by emotional headlines?
2: Well, I think we've already seen a good deal of COVID fatigue and I think with each successive wave that we've had, you see the impact to the economy lesson in part because businesses are getting better at adapting and keeping you know customers safe and and people are, are figuring out their own ways to stay safe as they go out and and engage. But I think we've already seen that to some extent. And I think You know, given that we are heading or are in the midst of you know cold season, I think you know, the the next couple months could Mm -hmm. still be a little bit hairy, but I think sort of like we saw last year when you had not just the vaccines rolling out, but you had nicer weather where you could get outside and and people just ready to re-engage. I think we will see a, a notable shift in activity um that that'll probably come around the spring and it'll look more like the the pandemic is in the rear view mirror even if we we end up with uh what looks likely to be a, an endemic uh covid mm-hmm. covid scenario
1: one, one of the big questions as you know and john will ask you to wait in on this one and start the dialogue around real assets real estate commercial residential if you own a home uh, or if you own some property you feel pretty flush there's a <laughs> As you well know, there's a thing called this, uh, uh, the wealth effect. Um, so, how much higher? When do real estate prices stabilize? And what do you think will affect them one way or another?
3: Well, if we again, I go back to uh, what was something I said in the last show. We talked about what what is really driving this inflation, um, particularly in the last several months. Um, I don't think a lot of that's going to go away in 2022. I don't think there's going to be a resurgence in home building that's going to Somehow or other, even if the economy slows down. And and I think everybody's forecasting that the economy is going to slow down in 2022. We're not going to have the big five and a half, six and a half percent growth that we had in 2021. It's probably going to be more like three to three and a half percent in 2022. Uh, I don't really see uh, much happening on the supply chain as supply side as it relates to assets, uh, particularly houses and uh, used cars. I don't think those things are going away.
4: Yeah, if I could just add to that, I mean, it is really housing, it's supply and demand. And there's been this big demand supply can't respond that quickly. So prices are going to go up, although I believe in 2022, they're going to abate. But I just want to make one other point. It's very uneven across different demographic groups and across different regions as to who benefits from this housing price appreciation. Uh, Some regions, for example, even within the Carolinas have done exceedingly well. Charleston, uh, Charlotte, Raleigh. Colombia, less so. So not everybody is experiencing the same wealth effect uh, as others. But the other thing is demographics. You know, houses don't appreciate in poor neighborhoods they appreciate much more in the wealthier neighborhoods. So the rich are getting richer as a result of this. And the real benefits of all this wealth appreciation have gone primarily to the top 10%, if not top 1% of our population. Most people are not feeling this. Um, 90% of the population is not benefiting that much
5: you know oh, the demographics side, ahead, i'd try. like to point this out because when i look at the students that are graduating i keep pointing out to them that they've got historically low mortgage rates why aren't they buying houses at age 26. well it's because the labor market is so fluid they're not going to lock into a house they're they're perfectly happy to rent because they don't know how long they're going to be in that region or that particular job so i think we've got a fluid a more dynamic labor force that also precludes buying some of these houses uh, so as a result, rental rates are changing mm-hmm. and apartment construction is booming, at least in the Charleston metropolitan area, it is booming. So I think there's a shift on that also. Um, as Doug in his report last week noted, we, we, South Carolina has been a benefit of uh, beneficiary of in-migration, a- and that's also driving up housing prices because these people are moving in with sales from previous houses and they have assets.
4: They're mostly so- retired. They're older, over 55.
5: Right, which is changing our labor market scenario too. So you know that that it's a whole. As uh, John pointed out, that we we don't focus enough on demographics typically in our analysis. Uh,
1: let, let me ask you something, Sarah, and then John. I want to come to you, and, and we'll start unpacking this idea about labor markets and what hybrid working models may look like. But Sarah, with the cheap cost of money, low interest rates, and it gives everyone the ability. Anyone who has credit as the ability to use that loan or use leverage. Um, Someone said in some dialogue recently that this could be a debt trap. In other words, we take out a line of credit, we borrow against it at a very low cost, we buy an asset, whether it's a car, whether it's renovation, whether it's a house, and then rates go up. And with the amount of people that have taken out loans with the idea that this is cheap money, is it something we can get caught into? Is that a fair way to call it a debt trap?
2: Well, I, I think you have to look at the, the duration and, and whether that debt is, is fixed. So from the perspective of taking out a mortgage at these very low rates, that, but it's a fixed mortgage, okay, that's, that's less of an issue. Um, I think where we do potentially see problems with rates rising and, and why you know when you look at the inflation backdrop and you know, perhaps procrastinating prognosticate about why isn't the Fed likely to raise rates faster is because there is a lot of debt in the system. And, you know, particularly when you get into, you know, corporate debt, a lot of that's actually floating too. And so there's a lot of questions between that and also just the federal government debt is, you know, how much can, can rates actually rise before it does, before that um, before the interest burden does get more prohibitive and, and create larger problems, it's it's still not very known. It's going to be something that the Fed's going to have to test to some extent, and that's why they're they're likely to move slowly in, in terms of interest rate hikes that okay. later this year.
1: Uh, f- from the C-suite of Fortune 500 companies to the smallest businesses in the Carolinas, John, you know that the big the big debate, the big unknown at this point is what the workforce is going to look like a year, two, and five years from now, and I mean look like when it comes to where are they gonna be located? How do they work? How do they interact? We are in the midst of a hybrid model. How do you think this, this unfolds the next couple of years?
3: Well, I think there, there, there is one known in this area and that is that uh, labor force is gonna be stagnant or shrink over the next decade. Uh, that's that's a given. Um, unless we can entice the older baby boomers once they retire to come back into the labor force, Um, the age groups that are replacing the baby boomers are smaller. Mm -hmm. And that's number one. And number two, um, historically, younger folks have a lower labor force participation rate than the older folks, the baby boomers did. So the millennials, the X's, the Y's, they all have lower labor force participation rates than the baby boomers did. So businesses are going to have to be aware of this. And on two fronts, they're going to have to create work environments that are conducive to this younger generation. And I think that anybody that dismisses out of hand uh, hybrid work um, is is going to suffer labor problems. I think most I think most organizations are now looking at a at a hybrid where you work sometime in the office. Uh, depending on the organization, it may be everybody comes in the same day, but I think for most part um, it's a different. Maybe one day everybody's there, but on the other days it's it's sort of a, a random thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to make their own schedules. I think that's the future. Uh, we saw that work. I mean, let's be realistic about it. A lot of folks work from home during the last 18 months. And I sure as heck haven't seen any productivity levels going down. So, you know, if you're working on a computer, it's pretty easy to figure out whether or not you're productive.
1: Oh, two, two unintended consequences. This is for any of you all on the panel here. Two unintended consequences are um, uh, you've got uh, business owners, you've got chief execs, you've got managers thinking about, well, do I need to have a different compensation plan? That's the first one, as you, you all know. And then the second part of this is, again, the animal spirit of competitiveness in the workplace. If you've got a remote worker who's meeting with those that are in the office remotely, then you've got one feeling possibly at a disadvantage because they don't have the same working environment Eye to eyeball to eyeball. So, anyone, uh, unpack those two challenges.
5: Well, uh, I'm not too sure I can do that, but I want to bring something else on a side note before I lose track of my thought. And that is notice what, what we're talking about. We're talking about a certain class of worker. There are a lot of people who cannot work remotely yeah. plumbers, electricians, uh, they're just, they can't do it, factory workers. So, we're actually talking about a very narrow group of people that are one, highly educated, highly mobile. And, and can and do this. And so uh, to back to your question though, working at home works real well for some people, but what if you've got um, other family considerations? Your work environment could be substantially different. So it may not be as effective for you and you may be at a disadvantage because you're not having that uh, coffee room chat mm-hmm. with somebody about issues. And, and that becomes an interesting problem on how to work out the hybrid issue. But I'd like to reemphasize that it's not available to everyone. Doug, Sarah, what
4: do you think? That's exactly right. I agree with Frank. I mean, we we know a lot of people uh, love this uh, hybrid model now, and want to continue if they can do it. I think that is going to be true for a lot of office work. People with college degrees, advanced degrees, are the ones that benefit from that. Those with a high school education or lower, those are the ones in the service jobs, have to go. You have to do face to face. They can't. Uh, they can't go to a, a hybrid model remote work. They're going to but it's a challenge for the businesses now. I've I've been hearing from, for example, restaurants. I mean, they're desperate now. They're actually thinking uh, of automation. (laughs) They're the ones on the front lines of this. They can't find workers. They're looking for ways uh, that they can uh, increase productivity or keep productivity without having to hire as many workers. And and in fact, that's what we've seen is is a restaurant and uh, leisure and hospitality employment is still by far the one that's been hit the hardest. It's down below where it was pre-pandemic. I don't know if it'll ever come back, but how that they're going to make those adjustments, we're going to see starting in 2022.
1: Sarah, with us, force uh, this force dialogue around changing compensation.
2: It, it certainly has been in terms of what it's taking to wear workers back to the job site. So we see wages in the leisure and hospitality sectors up more than 12% over the past year. But also we're seeing some pretty strong wage growth across the board, even among those office workers. As you know, we, we've talked about, there's a lot of resorting going on, people rethinking about what they want out of a job, um, opportunities opening up as, as we do see this turnover and we do see this, this job switching. And so that's putting... Wage pressures up, uh, across the board, so it's not just you know those those lower pay in person sectors that have you know perhaps been competing most against the the unemployment benefits um, as well as that in person work, but it's it's broader than that. John,
1: do you have a, an opinion on the on the compensation
3: issue, the debate? Yeah, I think this is good. I mean, look, it's it's simple supply. We teach it in principles 101. It's simple supply and demand. Right. The economy's the economy is doing well. Um, for a variety of reasons, but a lot of it's stimulus and a lot of it's deficit spending on the federal government. Um, so demand is there, and uh, we are going to be experiencing labor shortages. There's no question about that. So how do you get rid of them?
4: You raise wages. So that's going to be the story in 2022. What, watch what happens to wages.
5: Which will then drive inflation. Yeah. Um, and, awesome. and, and, and Hush,
1: Frank, hush.
2: <laughs> I didn't mean to cut Frank off, please.
1: <laughs> you can, it's okay. That's the only way you're gonna get in, Sarah, you know that.
2: I, I was gonna say, but also what happens to productivity. So, you know, talking about automation in, in the restaurant sector, but that is a way that businesses can afford to pay their workers more with, with perhaps taking some of the edge off in inflation and not seeing those labor costs fully passed on to consumers. So that's also gonna be something very important to watch ahead.
5: Okay, but well, just- my, my gut feeling on this is, we're going to have rising interest rates and we're going to have rising inflation just because I've been predicting both for the last 10 years and I'm <laughs> going to get it right one year. And this was the first year at our Board of, Bureau, uh, Board of Economic Advisors meeting when I glowballed it all and said, you know what, now it's going to happen. And, and I, I really do think
4: that we're going to see that. Really? So, Frank, you're saying a wage price spiral this year.
1: Uh, a traditional Keynesian wage price spiral. Would you say a spiral? I mean, that sounds pretty dramatic. Would you say it's yeah, going to uh, be a spiral?
3: I, I would add one more factor in this. <clears throat> the last show, we talked about demand pull, cost push inflation. <clears throat> yeah, those have both happened in 2021. There's no question. I believe it's been a sequence. But here's the other thing. There's also a, another part of inflation. That's inflationary expectations. And we're starting to see uh, firms raise prices, uh, not because they have supply chain problems, or labor problems, or because they have excess demand, they're raising prices because they can, because people expect it, and it's not gonna really affect their market share. And I think we're gonna see a lot of that in 2022 as well.
1: Is there any dark horse expectation that we think inflation is going to be a couple things, stronger even than the most strident forecasts, and longer, not transitory, but longer, anyone?
2: So I think in order for inflation to to beat what a lot of uh, uh, forecasters are, are penciling in for the year ahead, I think you do need that wage price spiral to take a hold. And bear in mind this does not have to be 1970s inflation or, or wages to push inflation up either a um, bit further from here, or at least keep it higher than, than what I think a lot of people are forecasting and, and certainly over what, what the Fed expects. Um, I think you would also see probably um, supply chains remain gummed up. So the fact that even if you have good spending slowing, it's tough for these supply networks to dig out. You have inventories relative to sales you know, at decade lows. There's a lot of restocking that, that has to be done. So you could see, um, so you could see some upside surprises there. Alternatively, though, we have seen inflation um, being driven by a couple big sectors in particular. As you know, as I've spoken before, it's it's broad, but you know things like autos have been a huge force. If you do see that supply come back faster, you could get some pretty sizable drops in just the in just the autos component, that could um, bring down inflation faster than than expected too. Or or you see market share battles pick up again um, as you do see consumer spending slow. So there's a lot of factors that could pull it in, in either direction.
1: Do you think, Sarah, could it bring down inflation or erase inflationary gains
2: in terms of what, Autos, sorry, any, any I service,
1: mean. any goods or service? Do you think that's an option in any or is inflation going to be a pretty tough tide to beat this year?
2: I mean, inflation. I think is is going to remain elevated this okay. year. So we're looking for consumer price inflation towards the end of next year, um, roughly three and a half four four percent. So even as we have it moderating from you know the six plus percent that we're seeing now, it's still likely to remain un- uncomfortable for consumers and policymakers.
1: Okay, we've got we've got two minutes left. I, w- I want to take a quick look at infrastructure and a sub uh, group of in- infrastructure around broadband. In North Carolina, in South Carolina, there is about, let's start with South Carolina, Palmetto State has earmarked about 43 million initially for broadband coming out of the the most recent budget. In North Carolina, it's a billion. Um, Made a big commitment, we'll see how they deploy that. But to any of you, how important is it to get broadband deployed as soon as possible?
3: Absolutely essential. It is the number one infrastructure piece that we really need to be looking at. We talked earlier in the show about hybrid work. This opens up a, a wide range of job opportunities for rural folks. Um, you, can't get it, you can't get there without high-speed internet. And it, there's a lot of parts of, of both states that aren't served at the level that needs to be.
2: And, and uh, I would agree,
4: high-speed internet is important, but in the infrastructure bills, and South Carolina is committed to this is, uh improving our roads, our bridges, our basic infrastructure. It's very important. We're gonna have five, six billion dollars. In the in the economy this year, I believe we're gonna see more investment on the private sector side as a respond to the constraints on the supply side and have to expand capacity but we need infrastructure to make that uh, happen as well we hear lots of businesses complaining about the infrastructure that we're not going to invest unless they have an improved infrastructure so that along with broadband i mean that's good news going into 2022 Mm -hmm. that we're going to have this infrastructure improvement it'll take some years for that to be completed
1: right
5: Well, I'm concerned with the other issues we've discussed, and that is uh, labor shortages and supply bottlenecks. Uh, I mean, it's great to talk about an infrastructure bill and start spending. And actually, I'm not too sure where they're going to get the people to start doing this January, February, March of this year. Um, So, when when are they actually going to be able to put the asphalt on the pavement and and do the construction? Um, And so, uh, and this hits Doug real well because uh, hard because of malfunction junction. In <laughs> Colombia, which is slated to be a massive multi-year project, and ten so, years, ten years, and and good luck finding the rebar for it and the concrete and the people in the next two to three. So that's my concern on all of that. It's great that we have that, but it's I'm not too sure that we can actually deliver what the expectations are.
4: Mm.
1: Doug, did you did you have a quick comment?
5: No,
4: I agree with that. I mean, we we can't, this is one of those things you can't automate very well. We can have robots, uh, you know, repaving these roads and and fixing the bridges. So it goes back to the labor shortage issue that we've been talking about.
1: Okay. All right. That's the last word. Uh, Doug, thank you. Sarah, thank you. Uh, John, as always. Frank, as always. We greatly appreciate you all doing this. And this is is a fun dialogue. And thanks for your insight. Uh, Until next week, I'm Chris Woodham. Happy holidays. Happy New Year.
0: And thank you again for joining us. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.